I want to invite you to take your Bible and open to the book of Genesis in chapter 37. And I will say it was not by intent nor by accident that we're in week two of a series on suffering as our students and teachers prepare to go back to school. That's just under the sovereignty of God. I didn't think about school starting when we were uh, planning this series, but it may fit. It may fit. Genesis chapter 37. Now, if you were here last week, or if you heard it last week, we started in Genesis chapter 50 to build the framework of the understanding of this series of messages, these chapters that we're going to examine. In the framework of Joseph's recognition that while he know that his brothers did evil against him. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We just sang that refrain in that song. and I love one of the lines in the song that we serve a God who's never known failure. He only knows triumph. He only knows how to triumph. That His position as sovereign is unchallenged. Doesn't mean that there's not suffering. We talked about these dual truths, these two parallel truths that God is sovereign and yet we do suffer. We do endure difficulty in this world. And we talked about that because of the fall. We live in a sinful world. But not all, not all suffering is punitive, it's, but it is purposeful. Because we want to see that reason. And we talked a little bit about that last week as we introduced this this series, but as we sang this morning, I couldn't help but believe that in a gathering of this size, that when we were declaring, I'm going to see a victory, because the battle belongs to you, there may have been some in our midst this morning that it was all you could do to voice those words. Where every part of you wants to believe that wholeheartedly, but your context or your emotions may scream something very different. Well, this morning we're going to engage that truth, that reality. Because we're going to go back to the beginning part of this narrative in Genesis chapter 37 where we're introduced to the character of Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, the unashamedly favorite son, the flaunted in all of the family's face favorite son, and the things that come from that conditions and the circumstances are caused because of that. And we're going to walk through the beginning part of the narrative. But as we do that, I want to remind us that when we read narrative parts of the Bible, when we read the the unfolding narrative of God's redemptive work throughout the world and throughout history, we're drawn very naturally to the characters that we're introduced to. We read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're drawn to those people. But I want to remind us and encourage us to push back against that tendency because Joseph is not the main character of this text. 
We don't read this text to learn more about Joseph. We read this text to learn more about our Heavenly Father. Because it's not just looking at what does Joseph do, but what is God doing in and through Joseph to accomplish his work that he actually starts way back in the first part of the book of Genesis with, in the beginning, God. And in the beginning, God created and he made the heavens and the earth and everything there is. And they made man and woman in his image and gave us the ability to have relationship with him and to know him differently than the rest of creation. And then the fall happens and immediately after the fall, but God, God begins the, the reconciling work in the world to reconcile all things to himself. He comes to a man named Abraham and promises that he will be a father of multitudes and in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15, we have these engagements with Abraham where God makes a covenant with him to call out from all of the world God's chosen people. Because the Old Testament and the New Testament are not just a string of somewhat loosely connected narratives of God's work. It's all one story of God's work in the world to reconcile all things unto himself. And so Joseph and his struggles and his trials fit into that larger narrative of God being faithful to keep his word about his covenant that he made with Abraham. And so we need to understand this context. That this story doesn't just happen to some random guy. This story doesn't just happen to some fellow that just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time but really wore a snappy coat and it turned into some problems with his brothers. Everything that happens to him is God exercising his sovereign will to accomplish his purpose in the world. Everything that happens to him comes in the midst of this context. When God shows him favor and when God brings suffering. And so let's look in Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to just read through the text because this may be new for some. If you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, you probably have spent a little bit of time in this part of the book of Genesis. But if you're new to the study of the Scripture, we, we tend to be more New Testament focused sometimes and don't give as much attention to the Old Testament. And we should push hard against that. Because God's not different in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's the same God. We learn about Him through His Word. And so I'm going to just read through part of this text to give us some fuller picture of what's going on. And so in Genesis chapter 37, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation of the Bible this morning. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. You should probably note that. We have some time context. He's 17 years old. By the time we get to the end of the book where they're two years into the years of famine, apparently uh, approximately 22 years have passed between now and when things start to make sense. So if you're 22 days into your trial, a little bit of context. But he brings back a bad report. Now Israel... Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than all of his sons. 
Strike two. Because he was the son of his old age, he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Let's let this just sit for a moment. He's unashamedly been noted as the favorite. And just to remind everyone every day, he gets to wear a special coat. And it says that they could not speak kindly to him. Imagine the family dinners right now. Everybody gathers around wherever they would eat, and here comes Joseph. And immediately the environment in the room changes. They don't just dislike him, they hate him, and to the point where they can't speak kindly to him. They've got nothing good to say to him. They cannot speak to him on friendly terms. And then Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, catch this, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. They don't want to hear that dream because they already can't speak kindly to him. And he's wearing the coat, most likely, while he's telling about the dream. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Strike whatever we're on. 30, thank you. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they hated him. They hated him even more. And now they hated him even more. I don't think they like him. And now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you on the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. So they didn't like him. They hated him. They hated him more. Now they're jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. And then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Now, if you can remember just 12 verses before, when this happened previously, he gave them a bad report. Strike one. I don't think things have gotten any better about verse 13. And then he said, uh, then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent them from the valley of Hebron, sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And he found him, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And then the man said, They have moved from here. For I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. And when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. A lot happens between verse 17 and verse 18. They're working. They're doing their thing. And they see him while he was a bit away. How do you think they recognized him? There's that coat. 
The last time we had this context, he brought back a bad report. They saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let's kill him. And throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. And then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Good old Reuben. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but don't lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Now before we give Reuben too much credit, if you go back a couple chapters before, Reuben has dishonored his father by taking one of his concubines. And so I don't believe for a second Reuben's saying, you know, we really ought to do the right thing here. I think Reuben is trying to get back in good with his father by saving the favorite son. Because his plan is, let's throw him in the pit, then later I'll come back and get him, and I'll bring him back to dad. And so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varied colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And then, of course, they sat down and had lunch. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites were coming from Gilead and with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh and so on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brother, Swamp profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother. After all, he is our brother. It's our own flesh. We might as well make a dime here. And his brothers listened to him, and then some of the Midianite traders passed by, and so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Little phrase at the end of that verse that's got enormous consequence. Because in the midst of suffering, God is sovereign. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there, and as for me, where am I to go? See, it kind of plays his motive in verse 30. So before you think I was just being overly harsh on Reuben, I think I was being very gracious to Reuben. Because he shows his hand in verse 30. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and he said, This is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son for many days. And then all of his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. And so his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Two little phrases there just sort of tagged on to the end of the narrative that are important keys on which this narrative hinges of God working out his sovereignty to do what? Remember to keep his covenant that he gave back in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. God working to save his people. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
God gave Joseph dreams. Dreams. Now we're going to see, as, you, as, as the, un, narr, the narrative unfolds, how dreams continue to play a, a key role in his life because he's going to interpret some dreams in prison. Then he's going to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. and It's going to be this, this ongoing thing that, that God uses in the life of Joseph. But what we have in the text between chapter 37 and chapter 50, is the continual faithfulness of God to Joseph and the apparent faithfulness of Joseph to God. What we don't have, and we can't make the argument from absence, is Joseph doing a lot of complaining, nor there being a thread of Joseph held tightly to the dreams that God gave him and therefore served God faithfully. We don't have that repetition. Sometimes in the Old Testament we'll have a repetitious phrase. And this happened, and this happened, and this happened. We don't have that here. All we have is this narrative unfolding and these little reminders like in Genesis chapter 30, bookending the chapter where it says, And God was with Joseph. And God gave him favor. He says it about him in Potiphar's house. God was with Joseph and God gave him favor. And Potiphar's house was blessed because of Joseph. And then after things go south in Potiphar's house, he ends up in prison almost immediately by according to the text. Responsibilities are put on him and God was with Joseph. We don't have anything in the text throughout these 13 chapters except... God's continued faithfulness to Joseph. What we have on Joseph's side is God gave him two dreams that he understood as something that was going to come in his life. And we'll see eventually that these things do come to pass. In God's faithfulness and goodness. Because I think it's a reasonable question. How did Joseph endure for these years? We can read all 13 chapters pretty quickly. If we read slowly, it may take us 22 minutes. But it takes it 22 years for this text to unfold. Years move quickly, but days go slowly. Is that the phrase? Because the trip from... Dothan to Egypt took a while. He didn't didn't just get there. He's got some time to think about what's happened to him. And then in Egypt, being the process of being sold, he's got some time to think about what's happened to him. While he's serving, diligently serving and doing his thing, knowing that God is with him, he's got some time to think about it. The thing that we see here is that God gave him dreams... And so the faithfulness of God and God being with him and God giving him favor, God being with him, God giving him, seems to be the thing that enables him to endure in all these things and come to the end of the process and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So as New Testament followers of Jesus, learning from God's character, God's provision to his people, as we talked about last week, that God provides for his people. God is sufficient for his people in times of suffering. 
and that God doesn't change between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as followers of Jesus, as New Testament followers of Jesus, what can we rely on or depend on in our time of suffering? Well, I hope not dreams, because I dream weird stuff. I asked the 830 service if anybody ever had a dream, and nobody raised their hand. I thought, I find that hard to believe. And for a second, I thought, I might be dreaming. Have you ever had one of those things where you're dreaming and you don't think you're dreaming? So I'll ask this, have you ever had a dream? Thank you, a few of you, good, yes. I dream particular things during particular seasons of life whenever I'm super stressed and really busy and I feel like I might be teetering on the edge of losing control. I very often dream that my teeth are falling out. Anybody else dream that? Thank you, I see that hand. Anybody else? Thank you, I see that hand. Is there another? Never sounded more like a preacher in all my life. I see that hand, yes. Similarly afflicted. And you wake up terrified because it feels real. I also sometimes dream that I'm falling. Not like falling out of an airplane, but it looks like tripping and falling down. I'm not about to try to read anything into either of those things. I, I shouldn't. I don't have to. Because when we are in the midst of trial... And our emotions and our feelings want to scream loudest. And they very often scream things that are not true. If I'm enduring this, then God must not be good. That's an emotive response. It's not a theological statement. If I'm enduring this, then what do we lean on? We don't have to hope that we have a dream. Because while God gave dreams to Joseph, God gave promises to us. And I want to push pause in the Old Testament and move to the New. And I want to invite you to look in John chapter 14. Where Jesus is talking to a group of guys who are about to go through some trial of their own. Jesus is coming up on the last few hours that he's going to spend with his disciples and they're sharing Passover together. And he can tell that they are troubled by the things that are going on. And at the end of chapter 13 of, John, of the book of John, uh, Jesus has this conversation with, uh, with Peter where he predicts that Peter's going to deny him. That was not especially encouraging to Peter. And as Jesus sits with his friends... Begins John chapter 14 with these words, Let not your heart be troubled. Scholars tell us that over 365 times in the Bible, some form of do not fear is given. Don't fear. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. 365 times. It's almost like we need to hear that. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Look in John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Promise. Promises that speak truth. 
In Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes to the church at Philippi some instruction. Right after the section about praying about everything and that in that to not be anxious because in our prayers the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts and minds. He begins verse 8 with some things to think about. And the first one he says is think on what is true. Brothers, if there's anything true, and then he gives a list of other things. Honorable, good repute, things praiseworthy. The end, the end exhortation is think on these things. So the call there is to think on what is true. Well, what is true are the things that we've been promised by God. And the first thing that we're promised here is God's presence. He talks about being with Him in these first four verses. That even though, and I realize the irony here, He's talking about being with them as He's preparing for them to not be with Him. But He's going to tell them in just a few moments, it's to your benefit that I go away, because if I go away, then the Father will send the Helper who will come and not only be with you, but be in you. In all this same conversation, I realize interrupting Jesus in the middle of his thought is, is rude, and I don't want to be rude, but I'm, I'm going to. So he promises that in his, in his going, he's going to prepare a place so that he can come again and bring us to himself, that where he is, we may be there also. But he has to go away because we're living in the meantime of when he was here and when he's going to return. You move down into chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him, and he abides with you and will be in you. And if we jump ahead in Acts chapter 1 and 2, where the, Jesus ascends and promises that when you go to Jerusalem and wait, the promise of the Holy Spirit will come, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then we move into Acts chapter 2, and we see that happen. There's the indwelling presence of God in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is a promise to us. Paul's going to write later in the New Testament that the indwelling of the Spirit is a guarantee of our salvation. And, and Gary uses the phrase down payment. I think that's a great phrase. It's like a promissory note that I'm in you, I've redeemed you, I've rescued you, and one day I'll return you to myself. We live in that eager anticipation of the, the already not yet, of being His and being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but longing to be with Him. But in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulty, God has promised to be with us. He will never leave us, nor will He forsake us. Nothing can take us out of His hand. And that pushes hard against the screams of the emotion that says, I'm doing this all alone. I feel all alone in this. We're not. We've never been forsaken. We've never been abandoned as followers of Jesus who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Promises His presence. And in His presence comes peace. If we move later into chapter 14, Jesus bookends this part of the conversation with this exhortation, let not your heart be troubled. If you move to the latter part of, of chapter 14, He says in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. It's not conditional. It's not temporary. It's not circumstantial. But it's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So peace Jesus gives us and he leaves with us. And then again reminds them of the refrain, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In his presence there is peace. That doesn't seem to fit our circumstances very often. Because we live in a world that always responds emotively to circumstance and to trial and difficulty. And those emotive responses may not be rooted and grounded in truth. Now, I'm not saying don't have emotions. God gives us emotions. We just aren't given those things to be ruled by them or to be governed by them. We have them, but they're, they're terrible drivers. You ever ridden with a terrible driver? That's a lot of fun, right? Yeah. Emotions are terrible drivers. They're functional. They're good. They're God, God gave them to us, but they were never intended to rule over us. We don't live in subjection of our emotions. We live to submission of truth. When we feel alone, we're not because God has said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I leave my presence, I leave the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And with that Spirit comes peace. But not only comes peace, but also comes power. Talked about that in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Jesus is referred to the Holy Spirit here in verse 14, or chapter 14 as the helper, the one who comes alongside us to, to functionally do things in us and through us. We talk about the Spirit helping us understand all things and, and to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said to us. To bring peace, to guide us, to, to lead us. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit being produced in us. That it empowers us and enables us, which stands hard against some things that our emotions might be trying to proclaim to us is not true. Have you ever heard anyone in the midst of trial say, I just can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I just can't. I just can't today. Well, we, we can. Not by our own effort. Not by our own strength. Not by our own ability. But Paul's going to continue to write in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And he just writes that on the heels of saying, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have nothing. I know what it's like to live in a different set of circumstances. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not in ourselves, but through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but also in the company of other believers. Because when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said, the second one is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. Upon these two things depend all the law and the prophets. We have the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence. And God's presence brings peace. It brings power. There's a lot of peas right there. And if I had been thinking better, I would have said God's people. There's another P on there. But we endure trial in the company of other followers of Jesus because we cannot do it alone. We have His presence with us. But Jesus said the second most important commandment is to love others as you love yourself. 
The New Testament writes this way, that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, what he said in the two most important commandments. The way that we do that is we bear one another's burdens. And right now that terrifies some of saying, then that demands that I be authentic and I'm just not interested in that. You watched a video earlier about groups. You heard Michael's testimony about groups. I'm not saying if you're enduring a trial, we're going to put the microphone up and we want you to come up and share it with everybody. I'm not. It's not what I'm asking. But I'm also inviting you to understand that as a follower of Jesus, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And is there anything He can't do? And I'm inviting you to understand that you live in a community of believers who want to bear your burdens. And that may just be sharing that with one or two people in a Sunday school class or one or two people in a small group. And realizing that somebody may need to lean on you one day. Because we're made for community. We're made for community. We're made to live life together, to enjoy the commonality of Christ that makes us one. And what a beautiful and wonderful gift that we have. And that in the midst of all of this indwelling of the Spirit and and living in that truth, in the midst of suffering, we can have the peace of knowing that God also makes a promise of His purpose and His plan. Because when we endure trial and suffering, we do so in the context of two things that are at work. God is is in the work of personally making us less like us and more like Jesus. We call that the process of sanctification. God is at work personally in us. And we talked about it in James chapter 1 last week, that sometimes when we bring trial, we know that God is working to make us more like Jesus. So there's some personal work here, but at the same time, there's a kingdom perspective in the broader picture because while God is showing his faithfulness to to Joseph all through the latter part of the book of Genesis, what is God actually doing? I mentioned it a couple times earlier. He's showing his faithfulness to keep his covenant that he made with Abraham because through Joseph's suffering and through his being taken to Egypt, and if you move ahead a little bit after Genesis 50 on into the next book, you see that that there's a few more people on the scene now. And there's a new king that doesn't know who Joseph is. And God's going to do some amazing things to show His glory to the people of Egypt. And to sustain His people, His covenant people, to bring them into the land that He promised them. All through this suffering. So God is at work in our personal lives, also in work in kingdom work. And right now you may just be saying, Brian, I understand all that, but it just still hurts. And with that, I'm going to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. Because you might right now be in the midst of trial and everything in you be pushing against letting anyone know that. I understand how overwhelming that can be. And 
And again, I'm not asking you to come here and tell us all. But right now, the conversation that you might need to have with God is, God, will you give me one or two people who can bear my burdens? And can I be one of those people for somebody else? And thank you for the truth that you never leave us or forsake us. So this morning, some of you need to be hearing truth and replacing lies with truth. And some of you may need to be dealing with that whole community issue. And some of you may just be terrified the school starts soon. Wherever you are, God is here and God knows. And some of you need to meet him today through a personal relationship with Jesus. So wherever you are, we pray that you'll simply respond as God calls you.